You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. His ascension is the ending point of his earthly ministry and so also is literally the climax of all that he did. That ascension is so important. But the ascension then also forms the needed step for the birth of the church because it's only after he is ascended and seated and receives the authority for pouring out the Holy Spirit that he does and then Acts chapter 2 starts and the church is born and the power of the Holy Spirit is being poured out and unleashed in the world today because of that. Do you ever look back through the accounts in the Gospels and think, if only I could have been alive when Jesus was on the earth? We often link our intangible faith to the things we can see, hear, and touch. Just like Thomas, who doubted the resurrection until he saw Jesus, in today's message, Pastor Tom is going to show us that the work of the Spirit inside of us is greater than even physically walking with Jesus. You have access to a greater power because the Spirit of the living God is living within you. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 1 as he continues his message, a message of historic Christian faith. Look back at verses 1 and 2 with me as we look at the historic gospel today. He says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. That refers to his ascension. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, there's a lot of history wrapped up in that statement. Luke, the author, is informing his readers right at the beginning, I am writing... For you, I'm writing a second book. It's a book about history. I am a historian. I'm not a novelist. Uh, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a mystic. I am writing historical truth out for you. I want you to read it. This is my second account. The first account was a former work, and I wrote that already. I wrote that for you, but now I'm writing this second one. Well, what was that former work? You know, the first work of Luke is what we call what? The Gospel of Luke, right? That was his first lagos in Greek. That's a term that here takes on the idea of a treatise or a book, an expression. The term is used that way as a book in Luke chapter 3 and verse 4 and in Acts chapter 1 verse 20. The, um, the Gospel of Luke was this first work or that first work that he is mentioning. The Gospel of Luke was his first work. The book of Acts is the second work, is the sequel. That's right. And if you look at your Bibles, you say, but the Gospel of John is stuck in between Luke and Acts. It's stuck right in the middle there. That's because John's Gospel is a Gospel. And the people that composed the order in which these would be put, put the four Gospels together. Why was John's last? John's was last because John's was most likely written last. And the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics because they generally follow the same approach in how they tell the story of Christ. John's fills in details that the first three did not get into. So John's was put there to group it with the Gospels, but really Luke and Acts go together. They were meant to go together from the beginning. In fact, originally, the book of Acts had no title. It would just have been received kind of as Luke part two. Sometime later, the, the church fathers and scribes, as they started to quote it and refer to it, they said, we need to give this book a title. And so they came up with the Greek name praxis, which means acts, or we would say actions, or we would say deeds. 
In the uh, ancient copies, the title was somewhat fluid. You'll pick up one copy and it'll have a different title. Another copy will have a slightly nuanced difference there. It'll be called Acts or The Acts or The Acts of the Apostles or The Acts of All the Apostles or something of that nature. Back then, these two books, Luke and Acts, were written on papyrus rolls. We call them scrolls. For practical purposes, each scroll could only be so long without getting to be too cumbersome to try to carry around. And so most of them would be written and they would stop at a length where they thought when it's rolled up, that's large enough. And that was somewhere around 35 feet in length. And that's why, I don't know if you've noticed or not, as you're looking through the New Testament, that Luke and Acts are roughly the same length. Two parts and roughly the same length. Actually, Luke's 24 chapters are a little longer than Acts 28 chapters if you count it by words, which is the right way to count it. Both are large books, and they're close to the same size. Luke actually is the largest book that we have in the New Testament. Acts is the second longest by words, and then Matthew is the third longest by words. Together, Luke-Acts comprise just a little less than one-third of our entire New Testament. So obviously the Holy Spirit used Luke to produce a lot of our New Testament scriptures, and it's something we need to know a little something about. In fact, he had a penchant for writing things out in chronological order. He's a careful historian, and because of that, we can grasp what went on step by step. There are other striking parallels, by the way, between Luke's two works. Both of these works are addressed to a man named Theophilus, and that's evident from the introductions of both. Both cover a little over 30 years of history. The book of Luke covers from around 6 B.C. to around 30 A.D., and Acts covers from around 30 A.D. to 62 A.D. Both also give an important place to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the end of the Gospel of Luke, you see that it ends with the ascension of Jesus. Well, you read the beginning of the book of Acts, and it picks up with that event, Jesus leaving earth and going to heaven. Luke demonstrates that the ascension is really the climax of the life of Jesus. The other three Gospels don't quite make it that way, but when you read Luke, you realize that not just his resurrection and his appearances, but his ascension is the ending point of his earthly ministry and so also is literally the climax of all that he did. That ascension is so important. But the ascension then also forms the needed step for the birth of the church because it's only after he is ascended and seated and receives the authority for pouring out the Holy Spirit that he does and then Acts chapter 2 starts and the church is born and the power of the Holy Spirit is being poured out and unleashed in the world today because of that. Both of these works, Luke and Acts, also describe the actions and the teachings, the actions and teachings of Jesus Christ. And that might be surprising. Obviously, the Gospel of Luke tells us about that. If you were to summarize what the Gospels are about, you'd say, well, they tell us what Jesus did and what he said. You know, the actions and the words of Christ. But notice at verse 1 again here in Acts, that was only, the Gospel of Luke was only what Jesus began to do and teach. Hmm, that's strange. That indicates to us that the book of Acts continues to explain, listen, what Jesus did and taught. They are his actions and his words, not on earth, but through his spirit, the spirit of Jesus sent into the lives of believers on earth. 
So what the church does, Jesus is doing. What the church teaches, Jesus is teaching. That's the connection. This connection to Jesus and the Gospel of Luke and the Ascension right at the beginning is obviously purposeful by Luke. He, I don't want you to miss that connection. The Ascension is the key, the, the linchpin here that connects everything. It tells us really that nobody can make any sense out of the Christian church without understanding that the church is driven by an ascended leader. Our leader is in the heavens. After all, what do we call Jesus today? We call him the head of the church, right? And where is the head? He's ascended. He's in heaven. You can't make any sense out of this thing, this church, what we do, what we're supposed to do, where we go, how we handle ourselves, if we don't understand we are only a body and we serve a head. And so he is ascended and we are down here and we are doing what he wants us to do. We are saying what he wants us to say. That kind of clears things up quickly, doesn't it? It kind of tells us what we're not doing. All the other causes and all the other isms that are out there, we're not doing that. We're continuing the work and the words of Jesus Christ. That clarifies it for me. I'm a simple guy. I like things simple. The work of Jesus Christ then, in a sense, is both finished and unfinished. Right? His earthly work is done. Nothing may be added to his great work of redemption. No one else needs to die on the cross or go to the cross. No one else needs to break the power of death by being raised from the dead. Jesus did it all. Amen? That work is finished. Finito. Isn't that kind of what he said on the cross? It, say it with me, is finished. That means accomplished. It's done. But much must be added to the teaching and doing work of Jesus. That's where we come in. That's what praxis, acts, is all about. Jesus doing and teaching through us. And that's kind of exciting. We are now part of the history. We are real, are we not? And uh, I think I'm real. I think you're real. And we're part of the history. And if we go back a hundred years, they were real. Just because they're out of sight doesn't mean they should be completely out of mind. 200 years ago when the church was operating, they were real. 500 years ago, were they still real? 1,000 years ago, were they still real? 2,000 years ago, they were real. This is real. We have a faith rooted in real history. It doesn't matter that it's ancient. It doesn't become legend because it's older. It's real. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this concerning Christianity. Christianity is a historical religion. It is a religion that is not based primarily on an idea or philosophy. Most of the religions of the world can exist apart from their founder. You do not have to have an historical Buddha to have Buddhism. All you have to have are Buddhist teachings. So also with many other religions. This is not the case with Christianity. If you take away the history, if you reduce it as some have tried to do to a religion of mere ethics or ideas, Christianity evaporates. He goes on. This is because Christianity is indissolubly linked to the life and the accomplishments of Christianity's founder. And we know who he was. Indeed, Luke has been proven to be a top-rate ancient historian. A lot of people like to criticize the accuracy of the Bible. They're going to have a hard time with Luke's writings. 
Dr. Geisler and Holden's popular handbook called, the, well, that's a popular handbook of archaeology and the Bible, says this. At one time, Luke, the companion of the Apostle Paul, was viewed as an unreliable guide to the history and geography of the Mediterranean world. The writer of Luke and Acts often was alone in use of terms, location of places, and mention of persons not known to scholarship. Such is no longer the case. He has been vindicated repeatedly to the point that Sir William Ramsey, noted classical archaeologist, once a skeptic of the reliability of Luke, called him the greatest of historians. This is amazing how accurate he was. We know that because it's the Bible and we trust that, but there's evidence for this outside of Scripture that helps. Yes, even the famed scholar F.F. Bruce from England attests to Luke's accuracy, as does Dr. Ben Witherington of Asbury Theological Seminary. He's written a very scholarly work, The Acts of the Apostles, a socio-rhetorical commentary, and he defends his accuracy. The greatest work defending Luke's accuracy in the book of Acts comes from Dr. Colin Hemmer, not probably a name you know, and his writing is a little bit boring, but it's very accurate. He is the one who's produced what many consider to be the definitive work on Luke's historical accuracy. It was a landmark work published back in 1990. It's called The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. It proves beyond a reasonable doubt with archaeological evidence that Luke was a very accurate historian. Hammer, in one of his chapters, identifies 84 facts mentioned by Luke in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts that have been confirmed by history and archaeology. It's really a massive number of information, way too long for me to present to you, but it contains things like this, and I want to give you a, a sampling of what they have studied and found. Luke correctly names ports. He gives accurate nautical details, habits of debate among philosophers and their loathing of ideas like the resurrection. Jewish temple law, the proper location of cities, knowledge of languages used here and there, correct directions of travel on roads, routes to travel in certain seasons and not in other seasons, ethnic titles, correct names of Roman colonies, the right location of rivers, economic accuracy about industries in certain locations, proper titles for governing officials, awareness of certain structures that are now in ruins in certain cities, inherent dangers on certain trips that would not be in other trips, distances between cities, ways of obtaining Roman citizenship, practices with imprisonment, and on and on, facts like that. These are things that can be studied outside of the Bible. They're things that can be confirmed through archaeology, and they are. And that is reassuring. With such proven accuracy, today's skeptics can no longer sweep it aside with some vague objection, well, the Bible is not accurate. They can't do that anymore. That's not honest. If they want to be honest and face the facts, they have to come to terms with things like this. For the Holy Spirit used Luke. The Holy Spirit used this precious man to produce a book for us. You have it on your laps right now. It's there with you. You have it. You have the information. You have the accurate information, and you can use it. I know Luke's name is not attached to either of his works, neither the gospel nor Acts 
puts his name in there. But there's no mystery as to who the author was. The uniform and the early and the sustained tradition of the church ascribes this work confidently to Luke. No alternatives were ever suggested in history. Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. You know that if you've read through the New Testament. You see him along with Paul in his missionary journeys, at least some of them. Paul actually labels Luke the beloved physician. So he was a doctor, for all you uh, in the medical profession out there. The beloved physician. He mentions that in Colossians 4 and verse 14. Luke most likely wrote Acts right after the content that he writes about in chapter 28 ended. That would be somewhere around A.D. 62 the first century. That time frame fits the internal evidence of the book. As scholars have scanned it and studied bits of information, they see that everything inside of the book of Acts looks like Rome had not yet developed any hostility to the Christian church. In fact, it had a hard time even distinguishing Christianity from Judaism. And it didn't even really want to deal with the scuffles that occurred in relation to the preaching of this gospel, whatever it was. Well, we know that changes dramatically with Nero in 64 AD and the burning of Rome, which Nero blamed on who? The Christians, right? They got blamed for that, and then imperial persecution broke out. So it had to be written before 64 AD. So I just say again, beloved, you hold in your hands a very early and accurate document giving us much confidence about the historicity of our faith, the faith you and I hold precious. Now, who is Theophilus? Theophilus, some people believe that this was not a man, actually, that this uh, just means the church. They, They spiritualize the name and they say, well, Theophilus, since the name Theophilus means lover of God, then maybe this is a code for Luke writing to the church. But the problem is he's presented as a real person here. And so it's more likely that he was either the benefactor of the book or a Roman official of some kind deeply interested in the rise of this new Christianity, and he wanted to know what it all meant. He wanted someone to tell him, where where did all this come from? How did it all get started? Now, we say that because the title that is given to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1 indicates he was probably a Roman official of some kind. For that same title is used later in the book of Acts for two other Roman officials, Felix and Festus. Some even believe that Theophilus was the official overseeing Paul's trial when he finally got to Rome that's mentioned in uh, the last chapter. Because they say, look, You know, the whole story of Acts tells about the church and we follow Paul's life and then Paul goes and he travels and he gets to Rome and you see that he's going to be in house arrest for two years and he's going to have a trial and a verdict and we never find out what happens. It never tells us. He just stops the story right there. And so to explain why that abrupt and strange ending, they say maybe this was written right at that time and presented to this official as part of the defense, the apologetic for Christianity and the Apostle Paul. That theory does have some merit, but most scholars believe we probably can't pin it down that specifically. So why did Luke write to Theophilus? And we'll get to why the ending was like that. 
Well, I think we should point out that Luke did not write either his gospel or the book of Acts only to Theophilus. That's not how to interpret that. It was common in those days, as it is even now, to dedicate some major written work of some kind to a special person. You know, you open up a book, it says, I dedicate this to so-and-so. That was very common in the ancient times, and it certainly is still common today. You may have heard of Josephus, the Jewish historian. He dedicated his Jewish antiquities to a patron named Epaphroditus. But the work was not intended just for him. It was aimed more broadly. So too with Luke. Luke was really writing this for anybody who was interested in the facts concerning the historic rise of the Christian faith. It was written for people like us and people that you're going to go out and talk to that have questions about Christianity. It is a tool. It's an evangelism tool. It builds your faith. It helps you to understand history, but it's an evangelism tool that you can use. Well, let's Let's read and find out what did happen to the early Christians. It's a tool we can all use when we talk to people who have genuine questions. In uh, Luke and in Acts, we see that Luke set out to write these two works with the motive that he would provide for the readers assurance. That was really what he wanted. He wanted all of his readers to have confidence about the life of Christ and what happened, and confidence about the life of the church and what happened. He wanted them to have that kind of certainty. Would you turn for a moment with me back to the Gospel of Luke? I want you to see how this begins. Gospel of Luke chapter 1. You can see that motive when you realize these two books are tied together. Then you understand this also is true of Acts. But turn to Luke chapter 1, the very beginning. And you see there... He starts this way. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, verse 3, it seemed fitting for me. By the way, the work of the Holy Spirit is in that statement, right? As he was figuring out, what does God want me to do? The work of the Holy Spirit was in that. It seemed fitting for me as well. Now look at his next statement. Having investigated everything carefully. That is a Greek adverb, akrobos. We get our word accurately from it, okay? Carefully. From the beginning to write it out for you. And here is... Luke's Greek background, the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, his Greek way of thinking where he liked everything chronological, for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Theophilus had been exposed to some of this. He had been taught. Some even suggest that he was an official who was a baptism candidate, baptismal candidate. Know the truth. Have assurance about the truth. Come to a safe conclusion about this history. It's real. Don't doubt it. Naysayers be gone. Pick up the book and read. That same careful research that went into the facts concerning the life of Jesus in the first volume have been invested in Luke's recounting of the start of the church in the second volume. Dr. Hebert, in his introduction to the New Testament, writes, with the rapid spread and growth of the Christian church, there developed a definite need for an authoritative account of its origin and history. 
new converts needed and desired authoritative information concerning the nature of the movement that they had joined, the activities of its leaders and their experience in the furtherance of the gospel. Luke intends to give his readers a coherent account of the historical origin and early development of the Church of Jesus Christ. In today's message, we saw that Luke wrote the book of Acts as a continuation of the book of Luke. The purpose of both books is to provide an account of everything Jesus said and did. Pastor Tom showed us that the account in Acts is of the church continuing the work of Jesus. We are continuing the work and words of Jesus Christ. We are now part of the history with a faith rooted in real history to share. If you enjoyed today's message on Discover Hope, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to ask you to prayerfully consider donating to this ministry to help us expand the reach of the gospel. You can give securely online at hopebible.org. Do you live in the area of Columbia, Maryland? If so, you're invited to become part of our Sunday morning gatherings here at Hope Bible Church. Join us for a morning of Bible study, worship, and fellowship. Find out more by visiting our website. Again, that's hopebible.org. Do you find it hard to believe in miracles? Then come back next time to hear Pastor Tom show that miracles are a natural extension of the God who created the universe. Disbelief in miracles can be a barrier to belief. But if there is a God who created the world, and there is, miracles are not only possible, but should be expected. The series in the book of Acts will spur you on in your desire and ability to share the gospel. To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.